It's good to be in the house of the Lord together on the first day of the week, but also Resurrection Sunday. The table has been set by the things that we have sung. This is truth. This is why we're here. This is what we believe. Uh, But this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. That's the first gospel in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. And you're going to go all the way almost to the end, which would be chapter 26. And this is a very lengthy chapter. Uh, We certainly won't cover the entirety of it. There's about 75 verses in this marathon of a chapter. I thought I would read to you, however, before we read the text that we'll consider, the chapter or paragraph titles. Most modern Bibles, I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, If you've got a study Bible, you probably have little titles before the paragraph breaks. But this is what the chapter covers. In the beginning, verse 1 of 26, there's the plot to kill Jesus. And then we see this beautiful story told of Jesus anointed at Bethany. An alabaster box of perfume is broken and poured on his head in preparation for his burial. Most of the world missed that, except for Mary. Judas, to betray Jesus, is given in the next paragraph... And then the Passover with the disciples, we studied that a few weeks ago when we observed the Lord's table. The institution of the Lord's Supper concludes that gathering there, it seems. Before they leave, Jesus foretells Peter's denial. That's its own paragraph. Jesus prays in Gethsemane next. That's what we'll concern ourselves with this morning. Afterward, the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. And then Peter denies Jesus, just as Jesus had told him it would happen. But let's begin reading. This will be verse 36 of Matthew's gospel, chapter 26. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So you couldn't watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Again, this is God's word. And let's pause for a moment and ask for his help to understand what it means and the strength to obey. Father in heaven, we thank you 
again for Easter Sunday. We thank you for Christmas where we met Emmanuel, God with us. But Lord, we thank you for Easter where the story is complete, where the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world is slain, is buried, but on the morning of the third day is alive. Lord, would you open to us what we'll read here, which amounts to a very dark period, and a period that we, at our best, could barely understand, much less relate to. Lord, give us what we need to at least catch a glimpse of your glory. And may you be glorified in that. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Though most uh, usually see this passage that we just read, story of what takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus praying three times as a passage that teaches the importance of prayer through temptation, and that is certainly there. It's obvious we just read over it. I think far more important to Matthew's telling of the story or retelling the events is a window into Christ's heart, and that on the darkest night of human history. This is when Jesus is tempted for the last time to go through with what would be the basis for our redemption, to ask his father, is there a way out? But if not, then it's your will, not mine, that's important. There's a lot buried in this chapter, and it's a very dark time. And I I really like the way uh, G. Campbell Morgan, he's one of my favorite commentators from a ways back. In fact, my copy is just about falling apart, and they're hard to find. This was a young man who, at his ordination council, was told by those he looked up to that he better find something else to do. They just didn't think he had it in him for the ministry. But people through the years have enjoyed his commentaries and learned a great deal from them. This is how he opens up his commentary on the passage we just read. He says, With reverent reticence, we have now to follow the king through Gethsemane. We cannot attempt to interpret the sorrows of Christ as they are suggested to us by this narrative. From the beginning to end of the meditation, we shall but walk around the margin, stand on the outside of the darkness, and come to know in a very faint and far-off way all that is revealed in this story of agony. And I thought that's a great way to put it. We're going we're gonna to coast along the edges from a distance, hopefully see something that's described for us by Matthew as he writes it down. There's big questions associated with this passage too. Uh, the big one, why is this Jesus who for so long calmly and resolutely looked his lot and, and death on a cross square in the face? Uh, One passage describes him as setting his face like a flint toward Jerusalem when his family and everyone else was saying, don't go. Why is it here where it looks as though comparatively he has less courage than some of his martyrs who would follow? We've got stories of people singing in the flames of, of fire as they die for what they believe. Well, the answer to that is this is profoundly different. Jesus is no martyr. Martyrs died for their belief. Jesus is dying for you and me. He wasn't dying for what he had done. 
He was dying for the rest of the world. No martyr could say what Jesus is going to say in verse 53 if we kept reading. And this has to do with Peter and uh, what looks like a last-ditch effort to escape. And he says, uh, summarized, Do you not think that I can appeal to the Father and receive 12 legions of angels? That's not how this is going to happen. No martyr has access to 12 legions of angels. This, this is profoundly different. Now, martyrs were willingly uh, giving their lives and suffered in death because of the strength that Jesus' death and resurrection gave them. But Jesus went to his death knowing that it was his Father's will that he faced death completely alone as a sacrificial substitute for the sins of man. And this is where I would say, after a setup where we readily admit, this is a very deep passage that in our best situation we may just barely scratch the surface. Some passages are not meant for us to try to plug it into the go thou and do likewise package. Some passages don't readily submit themselves to three points in a poem. Some passages are just there for you to behold your God and where the most appropriate response might be a hushed worship. We don't get this. It's too far for us. But we're thankful for it because it's our life. So just like some of the things we've been singing, there's a mystery to this. This invites us to look at, behold, gaze upon, quietly, and worship the Son of God who came to earth to die in your place because the thought of living eternally without you was too much to bear. So because his death is unique, so is his anguish. Gethsemane actually means oil press. That was its name, and likely there was an oil press on that location. It was probably an enclosed private garden. If you've been on a trip to the Holy Land, you probably visited the Mount of Olives. There are actually secluded, gated-off areas on the western slope of uh, the Mount of Olives there, full of really, 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 really old olive trees that have had uh, branches grafted into the old stumps to keep them living, which is a whole different uh, picture and sermon altogether. But there's actually private gardens. And if you know the right person, you might be able to get away from all the noise and maybe read through something like John 17, where we're given actually more on what Jesus was praying that night. But as far as what takes place, we know some things. We know it was night. We know the moon was full because we know it was Passover. That begins with the full moon. Jesus and the disciples had left the upper room having sung a hymn. They had asked where he was going. He told them to the Father with absolutely no specifics as to geographical location or which direction he was going when he went out of that upper room. So basically he was going and they were following somewhere along the way. And we don't know if this is where he was telling them this, the, the picture of the vine and the branches, or if that took place in the upper room. It's kind of hard to tell. But perhaps he breaks silence 
But at some point between here and there to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells them that each one of them would be offended in him that night, that they would all scatter, go away. Uh, He actually told them it was written that the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would be scattered. He did that all the time. He was always quoting scripture, prophecies, play by play as this story unfolded that had been foretold for generations upon generations. But to think about what it would be like to hear that, uh, in other words, I am going to be the object over which you fall. For all intents and purposes, this is where three years ends for you. Now, that's probably what they would think. He has more to say. We'll get to that in a moment. But it's not the voice of defeat because there's no such thing as an accident happening in that darkness. There's going to be no surprises that night. He told his men what would take place, I think, in agreement with other commentators, to make it easy for them to return. If, if, if you're going to, humanly speaking, go through one of the darkest nights you've, you've ever been through, you don't know what's going to happen, people want you dead, especially your leader. You've just watched Judas leave. You went through the Passover. You're singing a hymn. You're headed down the Kidron and up the other side to the Mount of Olives. He says you're all going to run away. They're already beginning to protest. Why would he tell them ahead of time? Do you tell your children what's going to happen when you take them to the doctor the day they're supposed to get a shot? Maybe you do it once. <laughs> and then after they know the drill, even the sight of the building, if they go around the corner, they look at you, not today, not again, right? There's no way Jesus could have prepared them for this. But what he's doing is he's putting in their memory the idea that after it's done and over with, they're going to remember that he said it would happen and that it happened just like he said it would happen. If you're going to break the heart of the man who poured himself into you for three years, do you think it would be easier to go back to him if right before the worst thing you ever did happened, he told you it would happen? And then that later... He would rise again and go ahead of you to Galilee, which is what he tells them. There's this element of hope. But after I'm raised, I'll go before you to Galilee. So if they're paying attention later, the scattering he, he, he warns them about will not be the last thing. After the scattering, there'll be a gathering. After the defeat, there'll be a rising up. After the darkness, there's light beyond it. And a lot of times we, we focus in on one of the protests, especially, that'd be Peter. And he simply says, I don't know about the rest of these. If they all do what you just said, I won't. I know myself better than that. And that's the tragedy of it all. Because if there's one thing a man does not know, he doesn't know himself. We routinely surprise ourselves unless we've just become so numb to it. But we can't read ourselves. We don't know what we'll do. We'd like to think we could be the hero, and oftentimes we are. But to think we know ourselves is a mistake, and it was for Peter. He was sincere. There's no doubt about that. Truth is, he couldn't possibly know what was on the other side of that night in Gethsemane. If we look at verse 37, skipping one where we began reading, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. It's almost unanimously held that these three that are mentioned here, Peter, James, and John, were a chosen inner circle that Jesus trusted them more, that he could tell them more. The only thing wrong with that is the Bible doesn't tell us. It could be that they were the three weakest ones. Do you spend more time with those that need more time? Do you spend less time with those that can be trusted? Yeah, sometimes. You know, every family who's got a pile of kids has one that's just the golden retriever that never messes up, never does anything wrong. He's the one or she's the one in charge when you leave the rest of them. Uh, If anything goes on, they're the one that's supposed to have the official capacity to tattle. (laughs) Right? Okay, what happened? What'd they do? And you warn the others. They will be giving a report because they're trusted. I don't know that this wasn't the opposite of that. Maybe these were the weakest. The three most trusted are going to fall asleep three times in a row. Now, this is speculation. It would be just as wrong to say that that's what it is when it doesn't tell us, but thinking our way through it, there's a lot unsaid. Even with the disciples close by and three closer than the others, it seems that eight of them, that'd be 10 minus, uh, or nine minus Judas, um, Jesus is actually, it, it seems when Matthew writing here, um, the realization of Jesus' loneliness is intensifying as the story unfolds. Uh, what he says here, this is the first indication we have to the, to the state of his own emotions, um, doesn't mean that Jesus is so sorrowful that he would rather be dead. You know, some of us have been in pain where we say, this is too much, it's enough, I'm ready, Lord, take me. That's not what is said here. It's more like um, a sorrow so gripping that it could kill. It's hard for us to understand it. The word troubled here is even different. It's a strange word. It's likely that it comes from more than one word. And when we don't know a word's etymology, it's kind of difficult to explain precisely what is meant. But our best guess, men way smarter than I, is that it means away from home. This surely has to be as as far away from the throne room of heaven that Jesus left to be born in a manger, to spend some 33 years, to spend it alone in a garden, deciding whether or not to drink a cup that he knows is the will of his Father. He'd never been so isolated. That much is true. Uh, When he began his ministry, if you remember, those of us, uh, we all went through the Gospel of John, and we talked about how the crowds just came out of everywhere to hear this man and to watch him perform miracles and to heal people. The crowds were everywhere. Those crowds are long gone. Even the crowd that waved palm branches didn't really know what they were cheering about. A lot of them were imports. Uh, as the crowd would swell during Passover. But those who followed him in the early days, in the Galilean hills, they're gone. And then there were a lot of disciples in addition to the 12. Many of them followed him. But you remember after he fed 
them with five loaves and two fish, and everybody's full, and they came back the next day, and then he started talking about the bread that came down from heaven, and then he said really cool things like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part in this. And that's when people said, okay, time to be going. This is weird, if not awful. Who can understand this stuff? Jesus even looked at his 12 and said, everybody else is leaving. Are you leaving too? And that's when Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Very wise statement. Count that toward Peter on the wise column. He's kind of lopsided on the foolish column. See about that here in a minute. But that leaves what? Twelve men? Well, not really. One of them's in the middle of bringing a mob up the hill to arrest him. And then that leaves eleven, but no. You know, uh, eight of them are at the gate or outside the gate. And then there are three, but they'll be asleep shortly after he gets started. So he's alone. His words watch with me. And I I think that's the operative statement in this passage, at least what I want to draw attention to today. Watch with me. Really, it could be taken as no more than just a request for him to watch guard, to protect him. Hey, I'm going over here and I'm going to pray and pour my soul out, make sure nobody interrupts me. That could be as much as necessary to explain what is said. But when he says the words with me, I think that certainly implies more on the level of keep awake, keep praying. And if you consider it, it's his last appeal to humanity for that matter. The next day during all the trials, there's there's no appeals. There's no asking for mercy. There's no asking for anything. Uh, For most of it, he stands there silent. So this, this is the last request, his last appeal to his disciples. Will you stay up and watch with me? Will you watch with me as I pray? Verse 39, going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. Here's his prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The word cup is, is really a symbol. It's a picture Uh, used in this way, it would not only have referred to suffering and death, but from an Old Testament perspective, it's always used as a picture or symbol of the wrath of God stored up in heaven against sin that was promised all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Yes, it means death, but it means separation from God eternally. That's what this cup is all about. We so often get distracted by the the horrors of a Roman cross and maybe a lot of misguided preaching as to try to tease out all the blood, the gore, the awfulness of the, the visual spectacle of a crucifixion. I don't believe that measures at all in any fashion to the cup of God's wrath. Death would have been the easy part. But to take the punishment for sin, what is sin? Sin is an offense to God's holiness. And he's going to take what sinful man deserves, but in their place and drink it down to the dregs along with the abandonment. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? There aren't the imaginations necessary if Hollywood could figure out how to actually put on the screen 
what that would look like on a cosmic level for the creator of the universe to crush his son in the place of a wicked people that he made with his hands. You, you can't get the dimensions of the story any grander. That's what's going on. In one sense, all things are possible. You heard that in a prayer already today. That came on the heels of a, an awkward situation where a rich young ruler walked off after asking the right question to the right guy at the right time in the right way and had the wrong conclusion. And, and disciples are asking, well, what do we do? And Jesus says, it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. And then Peter said, another wise thing. Well, then we're all in trouble because we all would like to be like that guy. And God says, with man, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. But in this context, we learn that not everything is possible. It's not possible that man be saved any other way than through this cup. Man can't survive it. Man would be destroyed. But the sinless son of God, he can drink it and survive it. That, by the way, is the guy you want to trust with your death. You might trust, who knows, with your life. But as far as your death, trust the guy who lived through it and came back, has power and has conquered the grave. All right. If Jesus is ultimately praying that God's will be done, then what is the meaning of this visible shrinking from what is shortly to come to pass? Now, we don't like to think this way because we know enough about God that he cannot contradict himself. But doesn't it look like for a moment in the agony of prayer, they're on different pages? Is that possible? That they be on different pages? Theologically? No. But then you've got this mystery of God in the form of the second peace of the Trinity, the Son of God, only begotten Son, veiled in a human body with flesh and nerves, sweating great drops of blood under extreme sorrow, far away from home. This is a mystery, folks. This is a tough day in theology class. What does Jesus mean when he asks if there be any other way? Does he not know everything? And that's interesting because there are places where he tells us that there's things he's ignorant of, like when the Lord is returning. I don't know. So there's some things he knows, some things he doesn't know. Does that mean if he doesn't know things, he can learn them? Absolutely. Again, we're, 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 we're walking through a grand mystery in the dark at that. So... If it was morally consistent with the Father's purpose of redeeming grace that this cup be taken from him, that it pass, then that sounds like what Jesus deeply desires. But more deeply still, Jesus desires to do the will of his Father. So it's all safe. There's no breach. And if Jesus is ultimately praying that God's will be done, then we know where his heart is. But folks, what I think explains this is the last shadow of temptation. We have verses that tell us that he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. To think that Jesus can't be tempted is to have an argument with the Scriptures. 
Can he sin? No. Can he be tempted? Yes. Is that temptation valid being that he has no option to sin? That's where it gets tough, and illustrations break down. You can try to explain them different ways. I remember one professor saying, who knows more about a heavyweight fight? The guy who gets knocked out in the first, second, third, fourth, or goes all 12 and has his hand raised? I would say the one who goes all 12 rounds and has his hand raised. He knows the, the, the feeling of every one of those punches. Maybe that helps. But long ago, early in Christ's ministry, right at its outset, in the open wilderness with no disguise, the devil himself tempted Jesus how many times? Three. There's no question as to who it was or what was going on. This is before Jesus' ministry begins. And Jesus passes each of these tests uh, with flying colors. Um, what he says to them... Um, all the kingdoms of this world I'll give you for one moment's glory, right? Bow down and worship the devil. They weren't the devils. In a sense, they were. Kind of in Sunday school as kids, we look at this. Yeah, right. It's not going to work. Jesus finishes by saying, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That was the first temptation. There were more. There was Caesarea Philippi. A lot went on there, but you've got this conversation between Jesus, his disciples, and then later with the enemy again, but disguised. This is Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter was one of the foolish things. But he turned and said to Peter, this is from the mouth of Jesus, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's the second temptation. There's another, about a week later, on the Mount of Transfiguration. The same apostles make another critical mistake. Just before Peter falls to the ground at the sound of a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, much like it was in the river when he's baptized, you got Peter speaking up again. We don't even hear the rebuke this time, but he says, hey, this is great. You glorified like we've never seen you before, and Moses and Elijah. We need three tents. This is what I was talking about. The mountain of glory. This business about dying and a cross, we don't need that. That's not good for us. This is what we need. It sounds reasonable, doesn't it? We'd have been, uh, yeah, what Peter said. This is great. But basically, in other words, this mountain of glory is good, not the cross. Get the kingdom. Forget the cross. It's another temptation. Verse 40, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Then he said to Peter, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So the devil's not there and open, no disguise like the wilderness. Peter isn't there running his mouth, which was actually the devil's. Peter's asleep. So Jesus is utterly alone. 
And in the darkness that gathered around him, this cup of the mystery of a sorrow that we'll never understand, the cup of the fullness of the wrath of God was presented to him. And what did he do? He got the shadow of death. Upon him so was the shadow of temptation. We don't like to think of it that way. And that's because we can't quite wrap our minds around it. But the temptation was the same all along. To seek an alternative to sin-bearing. Suffering as the means by which to fulfill the Father's redemptive purpose. And back to that idea of what Jesus knew and when he knew it. If we could hazard such a question. We're given very little information about that sort of thing. But the author to Hebrews says this. I find it amazing in such a context. Thinking of where we are now. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death. Doubtless he's talking about Gethsemane. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Suffering's a great teacher. Most of us fail that class. But it says that Jesus is learning obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we look at this. We're standing on the margins outside the darkness trying to figure it out. What if there were a pause between the if it be possible and nevertheless not my will but yours be done? What if there were a pause like there was in in the Garden of, of Eden? What if there's a consideration of what the serpent had to say? He sounded awful smart in the garden talking about fruit and being like God if that's what you really want. He really isn't giving you the whole story. Now these are only profitable to just think our way through because theologically we know it's an impossibility. But to think of Jesus in terms of humanity, not only in terms of his deity. In that moment in the darkness against the temptation of hell itself, Jesus took the cup. He took it in its fullness. He took it alone, just like he had in the wilderness against the devil. Took it against the pleading of his own men, his own family. Took it knowing it would mean the abandonment of his own father. He took it because it was the will of his father. This is called obedience. And folks, this is the other half of the, of the thing that gets overshadowed by... I mean, we hear it since we're kids in Sunday school. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins, to wipe your slate clean. If he wiped our slate clean, we would dirty it up again. It's going to take more for the Father to be satisfied with us than just a blank slate. In fact, we're born in innocence. It's going to require something else we don't have. We don't have obedience. We can't keep his law. We've never spent 24 hours on this planet successfully navigating the gauntlet known as the Ten Commandments. Right? That's what did it. His obedience. Not just his sinlessness, but his righteousness. 
He was like God because he was God, without sin. And the only one qualified to die in our place. It was this obedience that separated this garden, Gethsemane, from the first, Eden. There, not your will but mine, changed paradise to a desert and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. But now, not my will but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. That's quite a swap. And at last, Jesus comes back to his sleeping disciples. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. That might be a little different than your King James. Later on is added with the ESV. See, the hour is at hand. Son of man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas is there. These two verses have caused no small confusion. Um, and pretty much all of the older scholars, I say older, not old age, but long, long dead and gone over the centuries, want to say that Jesus is speaking satirically. There's satire in what he's saying. Go on, sleep. Judas is here. You're no good to me. There's places where Jesus spoke with satire, and it's obvious where they are, but I don't think in most modern scholars and with a few better manuscripts think that there's just no place for that with the rest of how Jesus treats these men. John said he loved them to the end. He told them what would happen so they could find their way back. He, he is patient with their sleeping, though he asked them to watch with him. Now, it's obvious and it's clear that the disciples sleeping lost their opportunity to gain strength through prayer. Those prayers didn't happen. They were sleeping. And now time is up. So it seems as though he's saying, you'll need to sleep later, as if to wake them. It's time. And where they're sleeping, exhausted with sorrow, Jesus, having poured out his heart, finds strength, walks out to meet his betrayer. The contrast is glaring. You have the man qualified to pay for our sins on a cross, and you have people incapable of something as simple as praying with the man through a night you've spent three years with, watched him walk on water, raise the dead, speak the words of life that no one else has. Folks, if anybody had a chance, to pull together some guts and stick it out through a lonely night. I'd put my money on these guys, especially Peter. They're lost. We're all lost. We fail at this thing. We need saving. There's no other way. Uh, Oswald Chambers, you may have heard of that name. He's the one famous for my utmost, for his highest. It's a devotional. He didn't live very long himself, but many Christians know his name and his devotion. This is what he said on September 5th. I keep this on my desk. I don't follow it every day. Uh, It's hit or miss in addition to other things that I read, but I happened to last week. 
Read September 5th. He begins, watch with me. Jesus was saying, in effect, watch with no private point of view at all. What he's saying is, you watch me with no concern for yourself, but watch solely and entirely with me. In the early stages of our Christian life, we do not watch with Jesus. We watch for him. We're looking for Jesus. That's the early stages. We do not watch with him through the revealed truth of the Bible, even in the circumstances of our own lives. Our Lord is trying to introduce to us an identification with himself through a particular Gethsemane experience of our own. We all have our troubles, right? And just like this seemed to teach Jesus and build his resolve, so does trial and suffering in our own lives. It's a grand teacher. But listen to what he says. But we refuse to go, saying, No, Lord, I can't see the meaning in this. And besides, it's very painful. Usually our church prayer sheet is full of requests to get rid of that stuff. I don't want it. I want to be well. I want to feel like I did when I was however many years younger. That scale slides along with us as we age, but it doesn't mean we won't pray that God would miracle us into a more comfortable existence. It's just the lot we have. We're stuck in it. And how can we possibly watch with someone who is so incomprehensible? What do you mean try to watch with Jesus while he prays in the garden to his father, wrestling over what's going to happen the next day that's going to culminate in a, it is finished, but before that, why have you forsaken me? How are we even supposed to attempt to understand all that? Uh, Chambers is saying. And then he said something that kind of just made me turn the book back down opened on its pages we don't know how to watch with him we are only used to the idea of Jesus watching with us Lord I'm in a really bad spot right now I need for you to stay up with me tonight I need you to watch with me that's backwards of course he's watching with you but the point is that you watch with him This whole thing and all that's wrapped up around it we call life, including the most important things that we would instantly die for if they were threatened. All of that is nothing compared to eternity with him. We said a couple of weeks ago, for the believer, this life is our hell. Eternity is glory. And for those that don't know Jesus, it's backwards. But that struck me right across the face like a two-by-four. We're only used to the idea of Jesus watching with us. The disciples loved Jesus Christ to the limit of their natural capacity. I'm glad for that. But they did not fully understand his purpose. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they slept as a result of their own sorrow. And at the end of three years, the closest and most intimate relationships of their lives, they all forsook him and fled. Then he breaks a paragraph and says this. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts chapter 2. They refers to the same people, but something wonderful had happened between those two events. Our Lord's death, resurrection, and ascension, and the disciples have now been invaded and filled with the Holy Spirit. Our Lord had said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And that's the most remarkable change you'll see in the pages of Scripture. Men that ran away from the guy they spent three years with. On the other side of Pentecost, they run headlong into every last fight they can get involved in to tell the gospel even if it cost them their lives. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. And over the course of their life, they learned bit by bit what it is to watch with Jesus through one trial after another. He must increase. I must decrease. There's only one thing that can get me through this, and that's the man who took it all on himself, survived it, so that we could be together for eternity. Talking this over with my wife last night, when it's big sermons and there's a big crowd coming, I get nervous. So I have to talk through it. She helps me. And she added Corey Ten Boom, who she's named after. Um, concentration camp in Germany and writes about what it felt like to be stripped naked and processed like cattle. That was the worst humiliating thing of her whole life until it dawned on her that someone had done that for her before hung on a cross. And she also, Corey mentioned Helen Rosevere, missionary to the Congo. The government was a mess. And their camp, their houses, their hospital was overrun. And over the night, she was beaten, brutally abused, teeth knocked out. It's hard to sleep in that state. So she just prays, Lord, why this way? She got her answer. You wanted to know what it was like to carry the gospel. This is what it was like for me. But through your pain, others will hear the truth. The difference will be made in heaven. And I've had good grief. I had a nickel for every preacher who wants to get up and leverage the horror stories of others to make us sit up a little straighter. But the truth of it is, either we are learning to watch with Jesus or we're stuck in this sickness of expecting him to watch with us as if that's why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to be glorified. His father doing the glorifying because he was worthy, obedient to do what we could never do for ourselves. The world is broken. He fixed it. And because he fixed it, the only thing that, really that we have to do to get in on the fixing is to call him king. Live our lives with him in charge, not the other way around. Because he's worthy of it. All of this, the world, would th would, the world will think us mad to dress up and sit in a room like this and listen to these fairy tales they would call them. You're going you're gonna to follow this sad, suffering servant into a dark garden where he prays to some fairy godfather in heaven only to be nailed on a Roman cross and forgotten by modernity. It's ridiculous. Unless it's true. That suffering servant happens to be the king of kings and lord of lords.
Having done what he did, wherefore God hath also given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every tongue should confess, every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, to the glory of God the Father. You're smart people. Read that old book. Let it convince you of its trustworthiness. And learn to watch with Jesus. Until he takes us home. There's so much more that could be said. But I think it's probably best finished in song. So before we do that, let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for a dark night. In the garden of Gethsemane. We thank you for Matthew. Who would record glimpses of things. Just pieces. Things that we could never understand. This side of heaven but enough to understand that you love us, enough to understand what you were doing, enough to understand what would happen the next day, enough to understand that we're lost without your righteousness on our account, enough to understand that repentance is required on our part and faith that you give us in the first place. Lord, would you empower us with that Holy Spirit to tell these things to others? That our Easter Sunday wouldn't be a, a, a waste or just something to get dressed up for, but something to strengthen and focus our resolve to live for you. Lord, until you return, and as we continue to struggle, say goodbye to our loved ones as we let go of them and they are received into your spirit and your care. Lord, as this persists, would you remind us of what we're going to sing? There comes a time where we're going to crown you with many crowns. The lamb upon the throne. And Lord, would that be the motivation we need? Not for a week from now, not for tomorrow, for today. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.